Well, thanks, Steve, for this opportunity of joining you. The uh, PowerPoint is playing up a little bit, one or two of the slides. There aren't many of them, but one or two of them seem to be getting cut off for some reason. And that's a good way of introducing myself in one way, because I am the least technological person in the world. And therefore, it's a bit of a joke for me to be dealing with artificial intelligence. Uh, it's still the case when I hear about someone clicking a mouse that I want to phone up the RSPCA. But uh, I was pulled into this, I pulled into a project on artificial intelligence and robotics, uh, and they wanted some sort of theological input, and I have some general background in philosophy as well. So uh, I've been learning about it, and uh, I look forward to the session tonight with you, looking at artificial intelligence. Now, what is artificial intelligence? Put Stephen Hawking up there, you'll all recognize him, the late Stephen Hawking, who had great fears in relation to artificial intelligence. Amongst his fears were ones that are not uncommon, the fear that what humans will succeed in doing is to devise machines that will become more powerful themselves, take their own initiatives, take their own decisions, and uh, in a way decide, I'll use that word in inverted commas for a moment, the machines will decide that actually they don't need humans anymore because they do things more efficiently. It's along those lines, in layperson's terms, that Stephen Hawking and others uh, had difficulty with AI amongst other difficulties. Uh, Putin said that the leader in AI will rule the world. Meanwhile, I noticed a report which came out by a research group called Future Advocacy. It came out in 2016. It was a report on an intelligent future, maximizing the opportunities and minimizing the risks of AI in the UK. And while Putin was saying that whoever leads in AI will rule the world, this group noted that since electronic records began in the UK, in the House of Commons, which is not on anyone's mind today, I know, artificial intelligence had been used 32 times, T had been used 56, 564 times, this is in discussions in the House of Commons, and Beer 923 times. So one concludes that AI was rather less significant than T and Beer in the House of Commons, at least up to 2016. But notice the language I used earlier, machines deciding that they don't need us. Now, you might say, well, that is clearly metaphor. You may forgive it. Uh, others think it's not so metaphorical. So what exactly is AI? Well, it was born as a scientific discipline in 1956. And the term itself, it has been said, is a moving target as capabilities have evolved. Artificial intelligence is really created machine intelligence. Its scope is wide. We don't think of cash machines as artificial intelligence, but of course they do employ it. No one is there checking your account. No one is there uh, counting, making sure that the figure you punch in is the figure you get out. And uh, there are ongoing developments uh, in relation to AI and cash machines in particular, but AI therefore has got a, 
large range all the way from the things that are feared with artificial superintelligence to cash machines like this. They're sometimes called robotic machines, not that they look like robots, because robots, for many of us, have a humanoid kind of appearance. And there's a distinction in literature between artificial general intelligence, AGI, and artificial superintelligence, ASI. No consensus on how exactly to define artificial general intelligence, but it's roughly an intelligence which can perform the same tasks as humans can, artificial general intelligence. Now, in the case of artificial superintelligence, ASI, that surpasses humans or is deemed, is aimed at surpassing humans in what can be performed. In terms of the history of AI, what you have publicized, of course, most widely, I guess, is uh, Deep Blue, the computer that uh, played chess against Gary Kasparov, or Kasparov, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. Uh, and the, the most interesting example that's been popular, I guess, I'm sorry that one of the people's cut off, but at least Watson's not cut off in the middle. That's Watson. Watson took part in a game show. The game show was Jeopardy. And Watson won. And what's interesting is, is this. Watson, Watson went through various, uh, I wouldn't say evolutions, but development is, is the proper word. Uh, so that at the beginning, Watson was feebler than Watson was at the end. Watson was able to think laterally, which was quite a surprise as they came along, not in terms of uh, the, the kind of algorithms which you associated with strict linear reasoning. So Watson developed, and what I found interesting is when I watched the end of the game show, where, as you see, Watson was victorious, there's Watson in the middle, I felt like cheering Watson as well. Uh, Whatever my thinking about robots and humanoid robots, and even if I believe the robots have no consciousness, or even if I question the word intelligence really applied to robots, even so, they can draw you in uh, in their human ways. And that is nothing compared to one or two of the pictures we will see later. What, what, is, what has been at the basis of AI, which, which certainly has developed and diversified immensely over the decades, what has been the basis is a notion of the identity of mind and brain. Now, some of us, when we use the word mind, might think, well, that's the same as brain. When we use the word brain, we think it's the same as mind. Others will want to distinguish between them. But if with the brain brackets equal the mind, you can figure out the connections, the connections of neurons there, if you can work out the, um, the, the cybernetic system, the system of communications going on in the brain, then, well, what happens? Are you not able to understand the human brain, human intelligence, and if so, why cannot not be uploaded onto a computer? After all, does not intelligence emerge? Is it not what's sometimes called an emergent property? Does it not emerge from the way the brain operates? Does not consciousness emerge? Where does consciousness come from? If it does not come from 
the brain and it's chattering away to itself all the time in layperson's terms. So, well, if, if consciousness emerges from internal brain operations, then why should not a, an artificial intelligence be conscious if you've programmed it in accordance with the way the brain is understood to work? That's the way the reasoning goes. And you can see how from that the question of whether in creating highly artificial intelligent machines, robots at a certain point, uh, we have to begin to say, well, aren't they in some sense personal? And the, the word that comes up here sometimes, transhuman, that is a great book. A book, as you see, by Ed Regis. The Great Mambo Chicken, the Great Mambo Chicken, unfortunate uh, chicken which gets spun around a certain way so that it has to uh, relate to gravity in ways you don't do when you're standing still. And this strengthens the bones, uh, muscles, and everything of the chicken. And well, why do you spin a chicken round? Why do that? Well, obviously, is to find out about humans and their relation to gravity and whether humans strictly need gravity and or what relation they stand to gravity in. So Regis's book is a great book because in some senses it's a knockabout humorous book. But although it's humorous, it shows how at the roots of artificial intelligence there are a lot of people who are experimenting in all kinds of weird and wonderful ways. It's, it's a book to make you chuckle at certain intervals. But it's a deeply serious book showing how it is that a confluence of technologies, not simply computing in a narrow mathematical sense as was the case decades ago, not that only, but a confluence of, of technologies, um, including in relation, for example, to genetic engineering, technologies worked out at the nano level, how all these come together, uh, and the transhuman condition is the condition aimed at where you produce beings that have more than human capacities as we know them, transhuman, beyond, and maybe a bridge onto a new kind of post-humanity. Well worth a read, and it's great for seeing that the combination of eccentric inventors and the calculating machines and everything that went into the development of artificial intelligence. But I've talked about uh, persons and consciousness. Many people in the world of AI are not in the least interested, not in the least interested in whether you talk about machines as being conscious or personal. They just get on with their job. As one person said, you know, I'm about as interested in whether artificial intelligence can become conscious or personal. I'm about as interested in that as in the question of whether submarines swim. Do submarines swim? You might say, well, you right now may not be preoccupied with that. You may have other things in your minds as I look around at you. I suspect you do not stay awake at night wondering if submarines swim. You might say you couldn't care less. And many people involved in AI feel like that. So don't get the misimpression from me that people involved in AI are always interested in these questions of personhood and consciousness. And in fact, I'm not going to um, talk very much about that at all, but I wanted to say a word about the range all the way from 
cash machines. Now, what I want to do is to indicate just five areas, choose five areas uh, where questions arise in relation to AI, where AI impacts, has impacted, will impact even more, uh, and indicate the issues which arise in these connections. The first is the military. Heavily invested in AI. One Greek philosopher of many, many centuries ago, before Christ, said, war is the father and king of all. War is the father and king of all. And someone has said in response, ballistics and encryption is the mother and queen of all computers as well. Ballistics. So the, the technology is driven largely, though certainly not AI technology, I mean, is driven largely, though certainly not entirely at all, by uh, military interests. You can think of what they would be, precision-guided missiles, robotic soldiers... Let's have one up. And the ethical question in this connection is bound up with the question of war, the ethics of war. People talk about the way in which the whole question of just war, the ethics of war, has changed its moral shape But there are certain continuities, and it it remains the case that uh, people will defend uh, the development of artificial intelligence in the context of military technology on grounds on which they defend just war. If war is just, then let us make the war uh, one which is as free as possible from collateral damage, let the instruments of war, the weapons of war, be as precise as possible, Let the soldiers be as efficient as possible. So the case for the development of AI in the military realm is, broadly speaking, the case for a just war. And the objection to it, of course, is the objection that uh, we have proved what technological developments what discoveries, scientific discoveries can do leading to technological developments in relation to warfare. We have discovered that at our cost. We think of atomic weapons, nuclear weapons, that advances um, in scientific knowledge put to technological use are ones which do not all go well for what is happening in the realm of uh, AI technology if it is put to use in military circles. The second area is employment. That's quite a good book uh, at a general uh, beginner's level by Nigel Cameron. I mentioned earlier the report, an important one, in the end of 2016 by the Future Advocacy Research Group, and it reports that if you're looking for the first place where we're likely to feel the impact of AI more widely in our society, that is going to be the area of employment. And that title, Will Robots Take a Job, of course, says it all. Labor force in Amazon, for example, uh, 
the way robots uh, take the place of what you expect to be humans, fetching books and so forth in the old days, self-driving cars. Uh, I don't have the actual figures, but if you look at, at uh, the giant high-tech company, Google, if you look at how many people it employs, it's staggeringly few compared to what the big companies were employing years and years ago because it's got AI, it's got, it's got the robotic uh, hardware there. China does not do, uh, I gather, what most countries do, or most, most countries have done in the past. In the past, if in a country you have uh, the, uh, a company and you want to manufacture in different uh, places, you want to place factories elsewhere, you place your factories in places where labor is cheapest, so you outsource the labor to save money. China could easily do that because labor is cheaper in Laos or Myanmar than it is in China, but they don't do it. Why don't the Chinese take advantage of what everybody else does, uh, or most other people do, which is to employ labor more cheaply overseas for their products? Answer, because they've got the robots doing the jobs. Uh, it's a huge market for robotics, China. So these kinds of things are widespread, uh, becoming more widespread, I should say. Some economists predict mass unemployment as a result of artificial intelligence. Uh, people talked about the way in which at the beginning people thought they would take blue-color jobs, but now they're talking more and more about taking white-color jobs. And in the 19th century, the Luddites... Now, these days, when we talk about Luddites, you talk about people like myself who don't know anything about technology. But in the 19th century, the Luddites were those who protested uh, because machines were taking over the jobs of people. And uh, the textile workers, weren't they, in the 19th century, and you, they, they're important, actually, in, in British or United Kingdom history. They protested against machines taking away their jobs, but it's often said they were misguided because the Industrial Revolution simply threw up new jobs, new forms of employment. And some say that's what's going to happen here. You know, don't worry about them taking jobs. There'll always be new kinds of jobs. Others say, no, no, this is different. Roboticization, the use of artificial intelligence for jobs humans used to have could have a devastating effect, and, and some extraordinarily dramatic figures are quoted. I'm in a position to report this, but certainly no position to, to judge. I mean, here I'm touching a number of areas which I know about uh, without without being knowledgeable in the particular areas. But I know the debates are going on. How they should be resolved in terms of employment, I don't know in terms of the you know, prospects for AI taking our jobs. So military employment, the third area is health care. Yeah, I'll put the slide up in a minute. What happens now when there is a diagnosis? Well, doctors consult each other. Sometimes they will, uh, in the old days, they used to pick up a phone. Now they will phone someone halfway across the world in order to have a consultation if there's a difficult case. But now, with artificial intelligence, uh, the, the machine can give you statistics at 
in extraordinarily rapid rates. And we'll tell you when this combination of factors arises medically, then in 97.5 of the cases, dot, 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 and enables you to make a decision based on probability. And it's not just a question of um, artificial intelligence making diagnoses. I was in a discussion group uh, in England last year where the question rose of whether you'd want uh, a machine to give you your diagnosis. That is, not make it just for the medics to, uh, to uh, read and interpret, but to give it to you. If you are diagnosed with cancer, would you want a doctor to tell you or a machine? And more than one person said they prefer a machine. Uh, others were chilled at the thought of that. What happens to the personal touch? What happens to medical competence and expertise? Are we going to be, going to be training uh, people in medicine whose skills lie more in the area of being able to program uh, and interpret programs, or interpret the results of programs, than in actual the hands-on diagnosis, as it were? It is a particularly sensitive issue and has not yet hit the UK in a significant way to my knowledge there may be places uh, where this is already hitting I'd be interested to know if so but it's going to come I think particularly sensitive issue in relation to care for the elderly Japan leads the world here because in Japan there is a crisis of care for the elderly. Aren't people coming forward to care for the elderly? So what do you do? Well, humanoid robots can be programmed to respond to the elderly. They can pick up the elderly with a strength which no human can, bath them very gently, and respond to requests and, and hold a certain level of conversation. That's what they're programmed to do. So is that a good thing or bad thing? As some say, no, it is not. If ever the human touch is needed, it's when you have a baby or when you have the elderly, at all stages of life in between too, but those are particularly uh, important times if you have to pick any times out. Others say, well, as a matter of fact, it's... it's uh, remarkable uh, how elderly people develop a rapport uh, with uh, robots. More about that in the next um, section. But in any case, it's a necessity. We just don't have people. I was talking to someone uh, not so long ago. He'd been temporarily in charge of a hospital in England. Um, which had got into severe financial trouble, and he told me that one of the things that no politician or government is going to be open about is the crisis in care for the elderly, which is coming upon us. Some of you will say, actually, it has come upon us. Have you not heard? Yes, I have. But even more dramatically. No one will actually come out and tell you just how great this is. So... Artificial intelligence may solve that, will it? 
Fourth area, military employment, healthcare, fourth area, relationships. It leads on from what I was saying about um, the elderly here. Anyone recognize this character? Yep, I thought some would. That is Paro, the robot seal. I haven't seen Paro, but I was visiting a house in Mid Wales uh, the other day, and there was a robot cat companion for uh, the elderly lady who was there. Now, by robotic standards, it is pretty unadvanced and pretty primitive. Uh, Even so, you just kept noticing it because it would do things and gesture and yawn and stretch and, you know, you might be, you heard a little noise from it, you thought, is the cat all right there? And it, it, is, it is instructive for me to see this process over the period of, uh, I guess, an hour, an hour and a half or so. Relationships and AI is one of the most important areas. I should have put her name up, but there's a woman called Sherry Turkle, T-U-R-K-L-E, who wrote a book called Alone Together. It's a good book, it's quite repetitive, but it makes the point so very, very strongly that people are longing for authentic relationships. Children who are disappointed, fearful, ashamed before their friends... They can, in a, in a robot, they can have a friend who will not let them down. It doesn't have to be a pet, uh, like, like a cat or seal. They can be uh, coming increasingly humanoid. Uh, so that, you know, here's someone who's not going to uh, agitate you. He's going to relate to you. Your child comes out of school and uh, the mother or father or carer is texting away there the whole time. You look into their face, they barely look at you. Well, the robot doesn't do that, doesn't let you down. There you have the relationship. And it's, it's, it's remarkable just how sophisticated these are. Uh, sorry. Oh, this, is the, this is the correct order. I think, I think this may be the previous... Yeah, sorry. I, I have changed around the order. Here we are. That is a robot therapist... Some of you may be interested in the way I'm standing or moving. Uh, I'm not conscious of what I'm doing, but some of you might say that shows he's relaxed or pretending to be relaxed or nervous or uncertain or confident, all those things. And in conversation, there are people who watch. I'm not very good at this. At least I didn't used to be. I do it more now, I suppose. People who watch you for every single movement, movement of the head, the hand, and so forth, and can tell roughly what kind of state you're in from just apparently tiny imperceptible movements well I've seen a session on YouTube, I've seen a session of some of you may have seen it, of of therapy with a robot and every time the person being counselled leans forward or back or so forth the robot picks all this up, it's just straightforward um, matter of the signals picks it all up and the robot will ever so slightly, I mean you can see me doing this but you don't see the robot just tilting head and so forth, speaking the right words it's, it's a remarkably uh, effective uh, rendering. An acquaintance of mine came back from China the other day, 
was at a conference. Uh, some of us will be familiar to some of you, by the way. I'm, I'm assuming that people don't know much about this area, but some will say we, all this is familiar to us. That's fine by me. Um, a of mine came back from China the other day um, and talked about a conference he'd attended and was taken to his um, seat in the conference, and he noted the elegance of the woman taking him, the elegance of her walk, and he sat down. Only when he looked into her eyes, he noticed it was a robot that he'd been... Uh, with sexual relationships with robots are on the increase robots will sexually do what you want, what you ask them to do there is a dark side to this I don't know how well publicized this is and I wish I didn't have to mention it but uh, child robots Um, there's discussion of child robots for sexual purposes. The argument that some have is that you can't have sexual relationship with a minor, because that's pedophilia, it's against the law, but if it's a robot, and here the argument is dependent on the robot not being a person. If it's a robot, well, you can gratify uh, your sexual instincts in regard to children. Now, that is, I don't know how well publicized that is, but that is going on as part of the technology, the discussion, and the debate there in the background. That's the dark side of it. And Turkle, I mentioned her book alone together. The subtitle is Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. Uh, Because we're getting less from each other. Technology seems to many people to disrupt relationships rather than form them or sustain them effectively. And in that context, people are working on robot rights and robot ethics. Lawyers are working on this. Politicians, well, think tanks set up by politicians and and political institutions are actually involved in this particular uh, investigation of whether in law robots should have certain rights. Fifth and final area. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I got the slightly wrong order here at some stage. And her name hasn't come up, does it? That is Zuboff. Sorry the name wasn't up there. Z-U-B-O-F-F. Z-U-B-O-F-F. A massively important work. Shoshana is her first name. She wrote a book, just come out this year. Long, but well worth reading. On surveillance capitalism. And she writes very convincingly, very eloquently about that. She was uh, in Harvard Business School, Professor Merita in Harvard Harvard Business School. She talks about capitalism as something which wanted us to control nature, and surveillance capitalism wants us to control human nature. The amount of surveillance is incredible, and it's for the sake of predicting human behavior. Of course, the advertising industry is driving a lot of this. Google Street View cars. Google admitted, finally, that the Street View cars were picking up unencrypted personal information, emails, URLs, passwords, credit information, and your online history. You can see why... I put that up there. 
She documents this in considerable detail. The head of Privacy International, the group Privacy International, said Google was becoming big brother. It is seeking to modify our behavior, to affect and to modify. So it watches everything. And someone once said, uh, someone said, we know how you will vote in an election before you've decided. We know how you will vote before you've decided. If there are philosophers here who take an interest in the philosophical problem of divine foreknowledge and human free will, uh, that uh, nicely meshes problematically with that whole set of problems. Now, quite generally with the Internet, uh, it's been argued that the Internet is changing the physical structure of our brains. There's talk of neuroplasticity. And in a wider context here, uh, it's been argued very powerfully and influentially uh, that you know, our brain has two hemispheres, right and left hemisphere, and brain science is in some respects still in its infancy. But the thesis by a, a top brain specialist is that what's happened is that we've become very unbalanced, that although the f- functions of the hemispheres are shared and not strictly demarcated, uh, the, the right hemisphere is the one that is particularly uh, intuitive and sensitive and integrative. The left is calculative. And the left ought, in a way, to be servant of the right, but it's become the boss. The left hemisphere calculating, um, thinking of everything through the prism of calculation and logic and mathematics, that has become dominant not just as a psychological fact, but in terms of the evolution of the human brain. Now, again, as I said, these are areas which are, many of them, way outside my competence. Some of them I've done a little work in, but, but, but not at, at the level to, to, um, to be able to be uh, very confident in some of my judgments. But these are the areas of... Um, where AI can impact us. And, of course, that last set of comments I made about the brain brings us back to Stephen Hawking and the designing of artificial superintelligence and the whole question of whether, um, whether superintelligence can be so designed as to be precisely that super and superior and able to, be, to have not just calculated powers but emotion as well. Because in the early days of AI, the emphasis was on logic and calculation. Then it broadened out, so it became interested in the mapping of, of emotions onto machines. Now, how then should we respond? I have not covered all the different areas here that, which are possible, by the way. Uh, it's interesting to look at artificial intelligence in relation to the arts, for example, how should we respond? Well, we could take these point by point, and it's important, of course, to consider all the many uh, possible responses. And uh, many of you listening will have said, well, look, in relation to these five areas, this is how we should respond. And some of you will be more positive, some more negative about different developments. But rather than take them all, I want to ask what is the overall issue here? And it is a combination, I think, of two things. 
it's a combination of changing ways of how to think about what it is to be human with uh, the advent of the technological age which has been with us for some time. Technology. Humans, according to Genesis 1, humans are meant to have dominion. And because humans are fallen, according to the biblical account, then what they're meant to do, they do wrongly or badly, not as badly as can be, but things go badly wrong. So we know how it is that uh, with basic technologies, very, very basic ones, long before the advent of industrial revolution, let alone AI, uh, that one and the same technology can achieve two purposes. So uh, if I'm capable of um, sharpening an agricultural implement, then I'm capable of sharpening a spear as well. Hence the, the uh, verses many of you will be familiar with in Isaiah and in Micah about, about um, the weapons of war becoming rather weapons for land cultivation, uh, spears into, into pruning hooks uh, and, and uh, arborism and land and all those things, anything you devise for that can be used for bad purposes. Some of us talked about the time which we live as a technopoly. Such is the domination now of technology. Someone has talked of technology as the metaphysics of our age. Metaphysics, many of you will know that word, just in case some of you are not familiar with it. Metaphysics means something like a worldview. If I say that everything is basically material, that's my metaphysic. Or if I say, well, I believe there's a spiritual power called God, that is metaphysic. Well, technology has been called the metaphysic of our age. Technology is no longer the things we make, but the way we live, it has been said. And someone wrote a book called The Technological Bluff, and the technological bluff is that we have rearranged all our ways of thinking in terms of technological progress. So there's a challenge for us as to how we think about technology. Our, I'll use the word, um, uh, provocative word, our enslavement by a technological age. A huge challenge for us. Now you can, you can link this up with talk about uh, the rise and development of capitalism that is done by Zuboff, uh, for example, and uh, plenty of others, and they've done that, of course, in relation to the Industrial Revolution as well. Connections between technology and capitalism are important ones to explore. But what, what I want to pick up here is simply the way in which a technological way of thinking, as it were, is something we are, uh, which is becoming, has become so deeply ingrained that uh, it's inseparable increasingly for many people from whom they are as persons not something simply that you use. But there's a notion of humanity that underlies this. What is it to be human? You, David, uh, last week you were talking about Robert Boyle, weren't you? Uh, you at least you mentioned him in the 17th century. It seems to have been a hugely important time with a number of figures uh, talking in terms of um, 
the machine-like qualities of human beings. Descartes, the philosopher Descartes, is uh, often thought of as what's called a dualist. A dualist is someone who believes there are two substances, there's matter and there's mind, and these are distinct. And Descartes did say that, but when you look at the way he talks about animals, the animal processes of reasoning, or whatever you should call it, Descartes' critics said, but all that, because Descartes didn't believe that animals had minds or souls, all that is the way humans tick as well. So the Descartes still has a view of some invisible substance called mind or soul, which you can't place anywhere, it's not extended, it's not matter. But actually, if you look at the way he talks about the way humans tick and animals tick, they, they seem to be exactly the same, and yet animals don't have souls according to Descartes. Other figures were there in the 17th century, and a book was written in the 18th century called The Man-Machine, The Man Who Is Machine, or The Machine Person, uh, 18th century work in French. Behind the so much in AI is the belief that humans are ultimately intelligible, understandable, that is, through... uh, understanding in terms of basic um, physics, mathematics, how it is that mind works, equals how brain works. That once you have studied uh, the human uh, frame, particularly the human brain, there's nothing outside that to look at in order to understand what it is to be human. But to be human for Christians is to be made in the image of God. It is to be essentially, not just happen to be, but essentially in a relationship with God. And in this world, we are created as embodied humans, whatever may be said about the next world. In this world, we are created as embodied humans. And when Genesis talks about dominion, the limits of dominion are hit when you attempt to get rid of or tamper excessively with your own body, it would seem. Now, I know I'm being brief and assertive, but I'm coming to an end, and these are all things for you to challenge me on and discuss in Q&A, etc. So I want to conclude by saying the churches, we need to do three things. Firstly, in uh, assessing AI, in evaluating it, we need to keep our eye on the question of the gap between the rich and the poor. Who really benefits? Who really benefits from advanced technologies? Christians will be in the forefront of those concerned as they look out over AI to ask, well, what is this doing to wealth and to poverty and the relationship between uh, nations in as much as structured in connection with wealth and poverty? Secondly, Christians, I think, must be called to pay careful heed, something I'm aware of, that I need to do more than I do, to a lifestyle. According to Scripture, Christians are supposed to be distinguished from the rest of the world by the way we think about wealth. But we are not, as a rule. As a rule, in terms of wealth and possessions, we seem to act just like everybody else, which means there's a great uh, gap in our witness. 
Paul said in 1 Timothy, There is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Much easier to gloss over than actually to absorb words of that kind. And when one is feeling helpless about one's capacity to take on certain of the problematic aspects of AI, and I by no means for one second saying it's all problematic, there are many of these have more than one side to it, to them. Um, but when we say, well, what can we do about some of these things that you've mentioned which seem to be negative, we have to remember what Paul told the Ephesians that going to Paul through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's chosen, he said, the Corinthians, the poor and lowly, uh, as his witnesses. The third, of course, is for us at a political level uh, to be informed the best we can and put pressure where we can when we feel negatively about these things. By no means do I want to depict things purely negative light. I realize I've talked rather like that and talked about the ethics and the problems of connection with AI. There are positives too, but where there are problems, uh, then we need to be as informed as we can and different ones of us will be in different positions, different places, society and in politics, which will enable us to uh, at least try to exert influence in that particular area. But I've concluded that this last, or last but one slide, can be applied to everything almost. All right, okay, I'm sorry that's not coming up entirely there. This is Byron von Hugel. What we need is time. And technology speeds everything up and means we don't have the time we need. In order to think through these things, we need to get to know the realities in question slowly, laboriously, intermittently, partially. We get to know them not inevitably, nor altogether apart from our dispositions. But the realities we need to be reckoning with thoughtfully, only if we are sufficiently awake to care to know them, sufficiently generous to pay the price continuously, which is strictly necessary if this knowledge and love are not to shrink but to grow, we indeed get to know these important realities in life, the things we need to think about, in proportion as we become less self-occupied, less self-centered, more outward-moving, less obstinate and insistent, more gladly lost to the crowd, more rich in giving all we have, and especially all we are, our very selves. Now, I know you've memorized that, just like that. And that, by the way, an interesting thing. People talk in artificial intelligence about enhanced memory and being able to remember things. But you read what scholars in the past, well, some of them today too, were able to do. They could memorize, say, Homer's Odyssey in Greek. Now, now that we call transhuman. That is an enhanced memory, which none, no human being can have. But they used to do it. In the days before, you know, printing, people had to memorize stuff from manuscripts and extraordinary. And long after printing, they could do this too. That's uh, a book I'd recommend. If you had to read one book, uh, that's the one I'd recommend, probably, Craig Gay, but there are uh, a number of books, and he takes his own angle. 
And I conclude on uh, conclusion, conclusion, one minute more, on a deeply solemn note. Desi is the one to talk, it's quite serious to talk to about this in terms of the scriptural account. That is, of course, the Tower of Babel. Genesis 1 to 11, in its place, it's important to ask whether it's meant to be historical, literal, parable, symbol, myth, poetry, all those things in their place. But it tells a tale of woe, Genesis 1 to 11. If you eat of the fruit of the tree, you shall die. They eat of the fruit of the tree, so there is toil for Adam, increased pain and childbearing for Eve. Cain is expelled from the garden for murder. Um, Sexual irregularities of some kind lead to the reduction of human lifespan. Then there is a flood, and then there is the building of the Tower of Babel, which some have seen as the classic biblical symbol of what is happening in the technological age. The builders of the tower, tower found a plane. They said, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Make bricks and burn them thoroughly. That is technology. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Why? Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So there is an underlying anxiety there, ambition and anxiety, two things which drive a lot of culture. And without excessively dramatizing and excessively thinking in apocalyptic terms, we need to meditate on those early chapters of Genesis, which tell us what happens when humans exceed the dominion mandate which they are given. Thank you.